Let's open the Word of God, please, to 1 Peter 3, verse 15. As we get started this morning on a special message. 1 Peter 3, 15. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Peter says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. I think, uh, and there's a, a graphic of that, but I think since September 11th, 2001, and the uh, Muslim extremist terror attacks on the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., that most Americans, including most American Christians, have become interested in learning about Islam, know a little bit about it. And that's good, I think. But the problem is, in many cases, we've settled for some uh, oversimplistic sound bites, and three that I hear a lot that just aren't true uh, are these. You'll hear Americans thinking that uh, all Muslims, Muslim a Muslim is someone who embraces Islam, a Christian is someone who embraces Christianity, a Jew is someone who embraces Judaism, but a Muslim is someone who embraces the religion of Islam. Uh, you hear people saying all Muslims are Arabs and all Arabs are Muslims, and neither one of those affirmations is true. Uh, you hear people in America saying, well, the Shia or the Shiite Muslims, those are the violent ones, but the Sunni Muslims are the peaceful ones. And apparently George W. Bush thought the Sunnis were Jeffersonian Democrats, which a lot of people said is not true necessarily, but uh, it's a different story. And then the, the the worst of these fact bits that really aren't true, data bits that really aren't true, but it sounds so good, and people, Americans like to believe this stuff. Uh, the God of Islam, Allah, is just another name for the God of Judaism and Christianity. But uh, this morning... I want to dispel uh, those bits of fuzzy thinking and try to get all of us to think more sharply about uh, what this is all about. And we'll do it this way. We'll think for a few minutes about Islam in the present. We'll think about Islam's past. And we'll summarize what they actually teach under the uh, title of Islam's precepts. And so that's what we're going to do this morning briefly in survey fashion, but first let's uh, pray again for uh, teachability and for our troops and our peace officers and our firefighters who do so much to protect us and their families. And uh, Doug Strange, I wonder if you'd pray for us in that direction. Uh, Before we dive into this very important topic, I want to further warm up our capacity for abstract thinking by showing you three interesting I'm not going to say funny or humorous or anything like that. Uh, three interesting cartoons about preachers. Okay. Now, Anthony, you can relate to this today. Here's a, a guy in the baptistry, baptistry, and it says, uh, Budget cuts force Pastor Bob to change his vacation plans. <laughs> so that's not the greatest vacation, maybe. Um, here's a, a preacher inviting one of his neighbors to hear him preach, and he says, my preaching style is sort of confrontational. You have a problem with that? <laughs> and I, I don't feel like I bring that to the pulpit too too often. And then my favorite one, 
Uh, I know Ron can relate to this. Uh, Pastor Ted could say Pastor Brad always brings, always begin or began uh, each sermon with a question, and the question in the bubble is, "Why did I wait until 2 a.m. this morning to prepare?" Uh, coming in February, we're going to do a series of special messages, including next week, um, focusing mainly on Romans 14. Uh, what do you think about Christians who hammer out different specific convictions than you do within the basic frame of biblical doctrine and morality? You ought to love them and allow them the same liberty they should allow you. That's what we're going to say. One man sees certain days as special, Paul says in Romans 14. Another man thinks all days are alike. Let each one of them be fully persuaded in their own mind. You have an, an, God is giving believers an amazing amount of freedom to hammer out personal convictions within the clear frame of Scripture, more morality and doctrinally. And uh, I think TBF has emphasized that from day one, but uh, it doesn't get taught often enough. So we'll look at that next week, Lord willing. But as we come to February, uh, we'll start a new study on the book of First Peter. Uh, living for our Lord Jesus as exiles on earth now, actively serving here, not just waiting for the rapture to happen, while awaiting eternity with our Savior. But today, as I say, let's look at Islam's present, Islam's past, Islam's precepts, and we'll start with Islam's present. Islam is the second largest world religion. There's about 7.3 billion people in the world right now, and 1.6 billion, that's a thousand million, of them embrace the religion of Islam. This... uh, We'll look at some charts and graphs here in a minute. I'll just show you that one. That's kind of a pie graph of uh, the breakdown of the world religions against world population. So Islam's number two. Guess which religion is number one? But but realize, when you have charts like that, you've got sociologists, not theologians, defining Christianity. So you've got the Christian identity movement, Branch Davidians, and Jehovah's Witnesses, and everybody, even the ones who deny the deity of Christ, you know, uh, as Christians, and you've got all kinds of people uh, that these sociologists uh, tend to define as Islam, but that's a, that's a round number, uh, 1.6 billion. So it's a huge worldwide phenomenon, much bigger than the Arab world. Uh, the Arab world is only a little over 300 million people. So the idea that all uh, Muslims are Arabs, it just doesn't work, Scott, because you've got all the Arabs of the world look like this. That's the total number. And all the Muslims of the world look like that. So it's much bigger than just the Middle East or the Arab world. Also, Islam is the third largest major world religion in the United States. Uh, you've got Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. But based on statistics by the Pew Institute, it will be the second largest major religion in the United States by 2050 if the Lord tarries and unless something else or many other things uh, actually take place. So here's our basic uh, pie. I used to call these pie charts, and then our speech textbook says that's not a pie chart. It's a pie graph, and it makes it, it tells you why. So I'm trying to call this a pie graph, so it sounds clunky. Uh, I apologize. But they're, uh, they're the Muslims, uh, about a quarter of the world's population, if you just like numbers on a on a chart, which I kind of prefer, uh, you know, you see them there, the second largest world religion, right? Uh, same numbers, just displayed differently. So that's a big number, obviously. And 
based on trends primarily through biological, not spiritual uh, reproduction, if the numbers are basically here, Christians are 2.17 billion, Muslims are 1.6 billion, if you fast forward to 2050, they're almost going to catch us based on projections by the Pew Institute, which is the group that everybody kind of uses their numbers. Uh, interesting as far as a percentage of world population based on those statistics and the way they define the religions, which would be different than a theologian would probably, hopefully. Uh, right now, Christianity uh, makes up 31.4% of all uh, the people of the world. Uh, 2050 is going to be the same percentage based on their projections. Right now, Muslims are just a little less than a quarter. They'll be almost a third. So they are the fastest growing world religion. But a lot of that's because, uh, as I say, biologically, they tend to have very large families. And then those kids tend to have large families. So that's, that's why that tends to happen. Now, in the United States, these are numbers talking about the United States, not the world. Uh, people who self-identify as Christians, however they define it, however the, socio- however the sociologists who are compiling these stats define it, make up about 78, uh, just under 80% of the population in the United States. The Protestant-Catholic divide looks like that. The second largest major world religion is Judaism, broken down into those categories. And then Muslims are right here. Now, you'll hear on CNN and Fox News, Muslim spokespeople and news people saying there are 6 million Muslims in the United States, 9 million Muslims in the United States, 3 million Muslims in the United States. The numbers that the Pew Institute, which is a non-sectarian, non-political uh, organization that organizes stats uh, in this area, give us, is just a little over 3 million. So if you hear 6 and you hear 9, uh, it's, you won't tell anybody I said this, right? Some preachers tend to exaggerate how many people are in their church and attend their services when we have lunches together. Some People in other religions do the same thing. And if it's 3 million, they'd rather say 5 million or 6 million or 9 million. And I'm not saying they're all lying. That may be the numbers they're getting. But I'm using one set of numbers that most people in the field think are objectively correct. So that's the number. That's where I'm getting my numbers. And it goes from there. So it's a large phenomenon. Uh, there are more mosques. Uh, in There's like 1,300 mosques in the United States, which is where uh, Muslims worship. So it's a, it's a large phenomenon all over the United States. Uh, and then again, this is the projection. This is from, again, in Pew. Uh, they're saying that if those are the numbers right now, that uh, uh, Jews are about 1.8% of the uh, U.S. population and Muslims about 1.0%, by 2050, uh, Islam will be the second largest religion in the United States. It's still going to be a small percentage of the population, but it will be the second largest vis-a-vis uh, under Christianity, how they define that. Okay, now uh, let's talk about this whole bromide that uh, so many Americans assume that all Muslims are Arabs and all Arabs are Muslims. You've heard that, and maybe even think that. Well, some of you have seen this picture before, but that's me in uh, Amman, Jordan, and I'm standing next to a Palestinian who's an Arab, who's also a Christian. Arab is an ethnic designation. It's not even, uh, it's, it's a cultural and ethnic, I should say. It's really more cultural than ethnic. But uh, we tend to think they're all short and dark. But this is Dr. Ahmad Shahada. And I'm 6'1", and when I tease my, what's left of my hair up, I can get almost to 6'2". And uh, 
And when, my, when I wear my heels like I did that day, I'm at 6'3", and he's still taller than I am, and he's an Arab. And he's got light hair and light skin, and I don't care what color your skin is. I mean, it's one race, the human race. And if I don't start moving, I might finish in last place, you know, kind of thing. But uh, let's go to the uh, Arab world. And I've had the privilege of teaching in the Arab world several times at a graduate level, at the only graduate level Christian seminary in the Arab world. Uh, and, of course, uh, we're not really good with maps, a lot of us, but Jordan is the country wedged between Israel and Iraq, and there's Syria north of it, and Saudi Arabia and, and Egypt over there. And you've got this wonderful uh, graduate-level institution that give fully accredited master's degrees uh, to uh, college graduates who've already got a bachelor's in something. Uh, and these people are all male and female are doing Christian ministry in the Arab world. And we use whiteboards and PowerPoint projectors and whatever it takes. And there's uh, Rafiq, who's my Egyptian translator that year. And this is uh, my class in 2007. And I always like to point out, you're never going to see a picture like that of graduate theological studies in any Muslim organization anywhere in the uh, Arab world or probably anywhere in the world, really. How come? Got women here, you know. So according to Galatians 3, neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew or Greek, you know, it's all about faith in Christ. Now, it's interesting, you know, you've seen that many times, but I get there with my basic simplistic uh, uh, paint uh, graphics, and they switch them into Arabic. And Arabic, like Hebrew, goes right to left. So if you're wondering about the numbers, that's part of that deal. But it's pretty interesting. But there's that. And then we're in the classroom. So we're talking about Arabs. And here's the thing. There's about 330 million Arabs in the Arab world. Arab uh, is a cultural trait, not just a racial, ethnic trait. And Arabs can be Jewish, they can be Christian, they can be agnostic, they can be atheist. But the vast majority, like 98% of all Arabs are Muslim. So when you when you say all Arabs are Muslims, you're, you're wrong, but you're pretty close. I mean, 98% of them are uh, members of that religion. But it's wrong to say that all Muslims are Arabs because there's 1.6 billion, remember? one point That's the number you want to remember, right, Trey? 1.6 billion Muslims in the world. And if you only have 330 million Arabs in the Arab world, that can't be the entire set. That's a subset. Uh, I know Savannah knows this, but the largest Muslim country in the world, and if you ask the average American that, they would probably think Egypt or Saudi Arabia, which is where the religion started, or uh, Syria, or some, some country in the Arab world. But in fact, the, the world's largest Muslim country is Indonesia, which isn't an Arab country, right? It's, a, it's in the Pacific. It's a bunch of islands, thousands of islands out there. So only about 23% of the total number of Muslims in the world are Arabs. But what you want to know about the Arab world, because it is important, as we become more energy independent, it's becoming less important, and they don't like that. And I'm colorblind, but I know that's lighter than that. And all these lighter colored countries are Arab countries. You'll notice Turkey's not an Arab country. Iran's not an Arab country. Uh, Afghanistan's not an Arab country. We tend to think all those countries are Arab. Arab is a cultural trait based on language and other cultural artifacts. But these countries are 22 countries from the Western Sahara all the way across to Oman and Iraq. And those are the 22 Arab countries in the world. It's on the other side of the world, right? Basically right there, that's the Arab world. 
Somebody said uh, God gave the Jews the land of milk and honey, and he gave the Arabs, Arabs the land of oil and money. And that's one reason they came to ascendancy in the middle of the 20th century. But there's a graph with Indonesia showing a number of Muslims in each country. You have to go Indonesia, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh to get to the first Arab country as far as total number of Muslims. So however you want to think about uh, Islam as a, as a reality, it's a lot bigger than the Arab world or Arabs, and I think that's very important to know. Now, Dr. Pat Kate, who uh, is a Dallas Seminary graduate and who was a missionary and a sociologist for like 20 or 30 years in several different Arab countries, uh, he did some writing when he came back home, and this was before uh, 9-11, where he kind of broke down Arab Muslims into these categories, and most of us assume these categories probably apply generally to the whole set of, is, uh, of Muslims everywhere. That's my assumption here. But I won't belabor this except to say that he says only 5% of the total number, the total set of Muslims in the world are violent, what he calls violent fundamentalists. And so when you hear that, so it's important to realize, uh, 1.6 billion Muslims in the world and they all want to blow us up? No, the, the good news is they don't all want to blow us up. Only 5%. Okay? But when you start with a large gross number, like 1.6 billion, 5%, if I did the math right, and I, I'm worse than Bob Barker in, uh, with math, so forgive me, but I came up with 80 million, and that, that's a big raw number, okay? So we do have a problem. You, you cannot define this away uh, as George W. Bush's issue or Barack Obama's issue. Uh, this is a big issue. Uh, now, if we've got uh, roughly 3.2 million Muslims in the United States and applying Kate's categories and his statistics, which may not exactly be correct here, but I think it's a good place to start thinking about it. Uh, we only have to we don't have to worry too much because we only have 160,000 violent fundamentalists, not counting how many are coming over the border today, you know, illegally. So we do have an issue here, people. Now you read those and you think. I'm just going to, let's just start a commune, get some machine guns, and wait for the rapture. And, and that was kind of your first reaction. And I would do that except for the food. I mean, I, I just can't, I couldn't, I couldn't survive on that kind of camp food and stuff. So no, I'm kidding about that. I think we got to kind of shine the light in the world. But most of these people may have motive, but they don't necessarily have means and or opportunity. But these are the people that like celebrate in Gaza after 9-11 because Ideologically, they're violent fundamentalists. They, they're all for it. They may not even want to be personally involved, but they're all for it. So it's a mindset. And I think it's, so it's important to realize that we do have issues we've got to deal, deal with here for sure. Now, you know, um, some people have criticized President Obama on using the term ISIL instead of ISIS. And uh, I haven't always agreed with everything the president has done or said but this is kind of a bad rap because they're really interchangeable terms. And really, when you understand what ISIL means, you realize it's more accurate. So actually, the president and the administration, Josh, Josh Ernest, his you know, uh, press secretary, 
uh, always uses that term. And the, the, the Fox News guy says, what are you doing about ISIS? And he'll say, well, today we bombed the ISIL facility, you know, in Raqqa, which we should have bombed a long time ago, but it's a whole different thing. That's their capital, quasi-capital in Syria. But uh, these are just acronyms. ISIS stands for the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, those two countries. Uh, and that was the original name, and it is their actively effective area of operations as far as large-scale military movements, even to this day, Iraq, parts of Iraq and parts of Syria. However, their, their first goal, and their ultimate goal, is a worldwide caliphate, uh, uh, religious, Islamic control of the whole world. But their, their first big goal isn't just destroying, they don't want to, they don't want to overtake uh, and, and, uh, and uh, uh, what should I say? They want to destroy the existing government in Iraq and Syria and start their own government based on their ver- version of Sharia law. But their first major objective beyond that, which is their operational dynamic now, is something much larger than that. If that's Syria and Iraq, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS, what they really are focusing on is their first big objective is not just controlling those two countries and, and replacing those countries with them as the rulers. They want all of the Levant. That's where we get ISIL, the Islamic State of Iraq, and the Levant. And see, we're not used to that term Levant, but it's a regional term that includes, and that really should come out here, most of Western Iraq, all of Syria, all of Lebanon, uh, all of Israel, including the West Bank, all of Jordan, and the uh, the Sinai for sure, and some define it to refer to most of Egypt. So it's a much bigger thing. And so when the president and Josh Ernest uses that term, it's really more accurate. It's, a, it's, a, it's saying they have bigger fish to fry. They've got a bigger goal and objective than just... Uh, bringing down the governments of Iraq and Syria and dominating and stopping there. They're looking for much bigger uh, uh, objectives than just that. Now, by the way, uh, a really good person uh, that you need to be familiar with is a a fellow who's a devout Muslim whose name is Dr. Zahudi Jasser. If you watch Fox News, and if you don't, why not? No, uh, it's up to you. Watch whatever news you want to. Um, Zahudi Jasser is a medical doctor. He was a lieutenant commander in the Navy. He was such a good medical doctor. He actually ended up in the last parts of his career. He was uh, the physician for Congress and the Supreme Court. Okay, Not at the same time. The Supreme Court needs a lot more attention than the Congress because they're all very old, you know. But his name is Zahudi Jasser, J-A-S-S-E-R. And in the aftermath of 9-11, he started a group called uh, the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, A-I-F-D. And he is gold. He is good, okay? He's not a brother in Christ. He's a devout Muslim, but he... uh calls a spade a spade, and he says these folks that are wanting to to kill other Muslims that don't agree with them and Jews and Christians and civilians anywhere, like in Fort Lauderdale this week, uh, are not representative of uh, uh, a, a legitimate understanding of the religion. And he's he's very good. Now, the problem is you're only going to see Dr. Jasser on Fox News because typically... 
uh, I won't mention them, but you know, you know, the, the usual suspects, but you know, kind of the uh, mainline media, they won't have this brilliant medical doctor, Zahudi Jasser, they'll have different representatives from CARE. Now that's the acronym, and CARE, CARE. Isn't that a wonderful acronym? But it's not C-A-R-E, it's C-A-I-R, which is the Center for American Islamic Relations. And these folks show up in a suit, and they're very nice, and they're very calm, and they'll say things like, uh, remember, Salman Rushdie, remember he wrote the Satanic Verses, and uh, the first time I saw a representative from CARE, he was on Nightline. This is how long ago it was. This is long before 9-11. And, uh, you know, uh, as soon as the book came out, which kind of was, uh, kind of did a Da Vinci Code to the Quran, like the Da Vinci Code tried to do the scripture. But uh, as soon as that book comes out, the mullahs in Iran put a death, you know, get a, a contract out on, on Salman Rushdie, you know. So you've got this representative from CARE who comes, the main media says, this is the calm, moderate Muslims that just want to get along with everything. And uh, uh, Ted Koppel says, well, surely, Dr. Abib, uh, you do believe that Salman Rushdie should have freedom of speech. And he goes something like, well, yes, 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 of course, Mr. Koppel, of course, we all believe in free speech. But Salman Rushdie must die. You go, but, but you do believe in freedom of speech. I mean, he can say anything he wants to. Of course he can. He can do anything he wants. He can publish it, do anything. But he must die. He must die slowly. You know, it's like, really? And these are the people that uh, a, a recent, fairly recent presidential administration has used as sources for valuable information on how to get along with, with Muslims. And it's just not a good thing. Uh, but I will say this, and this tends to get some of my Christian brothers mad at me. But I'll say it anyway. Osama bin Laden uh, and people like that. I think I listed somebody else here. Oh, yeah. Uh, Abdul Bakr al-Baghdadi. He's the guy in charge of ISIS-ISIL right now. Those type of people, I agree with Dr. Jasser and with Pat Cates' breakdown. They're no more representative of the average Muslim than David Koresh, the guy in charge of the Branch Davidians molesting children and wanting to take over the government and kill FBI agents and stuff. Uh, he's not representative of the average Christian. And maybe I'm sensitive because I'm a preacher and I take my faith seriously, but during that whole uh, Waco debacle, you know, uh, I was watch news. I watch news not to find out what's going on, but to see how they're spinning it, you know, <laughs> right? But, I mean, I would watch the news during that uh, confrontation where the, the good guys had it surrounded and David Koresh was spewing out his venom and eventually he probably set it aflame, but, that, you know, it's a bad thing. I'm not uh, anywhere happy about any of the way it turned out. But here's the thing. You, know, you watch these guys, and uh, you know the, the talking heads will basically say, well, uh, we're going to go back to Waco now, and you realize David Koresh is actually quoting from the book of Revelation. See, the problem with David Koresh is he actually quotes from the book of Revelation. You know, people who quote from the book of Revelation are obviously going to be child molesters who want to take down the government violently, right? Now let's go to our very objective reporter on the scene. Yes, I'm standing in front of David Koresh's compound. He's the guy who quotes the Bible favorably. Here he is. And it was kind of like, the problem with David Koresh, according to the media, as I interpreted it, and I could be wrong. You know, you have a different opinion, that's fine. But I, here's mine, you know. Uh, I'm up here with a microphone, so here it goes. Uh, 
when I got from the, the coverage, and that was a long time ago for, uh, for old people who are less than 50, you don't remember this, but it's kind of like, this is what happens if you take the Bible too seriously. You get into a compound, you must children, and you try to kill the government agents. And I thought, that's not the problem here. The problem with that guy is, is he's, a, he's a, an egomaniacal false prophet. That's the problem. What they should have said is, this is what egomaniacal false prophets look like, whether they're atheist, agnostic, Baptist, Buddhist, Christian, or Muslim. And I would say, he is no represent, more representative of me or any of you, if you're a believer in Christ, than uh, Osama bin Laden or Baghdadi in charge of ISIL represents most Muslims. There's always a spectrum. Okay? Now again, you know, I think because we define our faith theologically, which I think is the only valid way, we probably have a much smaller spectrum. But when you look at religions as human institutions, there's always a spectrum. Dr. Kate talks about the, the four different levels, social slash moderate, uh, traditional, nonviolent, fundamentalist, and fundamentalist. You always have a spectrum there. So uh, you know, it's, it's just wrong to vilify all Muslims. 1.6 billion of them. I disagree with them theologically. They're not saying the same thing we are. But only a small percentage of them are violent and dangerous. But it's a big raw number. Okay? Can we agree on that? That's Islam's present. Let's look at Islam's past. When you put it on a timeline, it's very interesting. A lot of people don't know this. But Islam is the most recent, in a historical sense, uh, major world religion. And for me, as a Christian theologian wannabe, it looks to me like Satan kind of got into the uh, 6th and 7th century and looked back at the prism of Judaism, pointing to Christianity, and said, let's hijack this thing, because they actually draft all of our major players. I mean, you know that Adam and Abraham and Noah and uh, Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Isaiah and John the Baptist and Jesus, Isa, were all Muslims predicting the coming of Muhammad? You didn't know that, right? Well, that's what they teach, okay? So you've got to realize they've got the historical perspective of looking back at what I would say is the real thing and then being able to kind of hijack it or, or morph it into what they want it to be. But here's the basic information you should need to know. The founder of Islam, Muhammad, lived from 570 to 632 on the Arabian Peninsula. Today we'd call it Saudi Arabia, where he lived. In 610, when he hit 40 years old, he wasn't—he was kind of interested in spiritual things his whole life. But he lived, grew up in a polytheistic, uh, 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 multi-god kind of uh, system that believed in, in, in the wind god and the storm god and the rain god. And so he wasn't really attuned to that. Wanted something different. And in 610, he claimed that a spirit being, and I think a spirit being did come and talk to him in 610. But he, he, I think, incorrectly identified it as Gabriel, the angel. Although when he went home to his wife the first day, he said, I don't know if a genie or a jinn or an angel is talking to me, but I'm going to go back and get some more. And a jinn means a demon. So in 610, he received his first of a long series of revelatory uh, visitations by various beings, uh, presumably angels, according to his account. In 622... Uh, by invitation, he moved from his city of Mecca, because he was receiving a lot of opposition by the locals, to a city several hundred miles north of that called Medina, and they made him the head preacher, the mayor, the police chief, 
and they put him in charge of the militia. They just basically said, come in and take over. It's kind of the Wild West, and they had no, uh, not much control over the crime and stuff. And they brought him in because he was a powerful leader, and he set up the first uh, Islamic culture society in, not in Mecca, which is now the epicenter of the religion, but Medina in uh, 622. By 630, he returns to Mecca, intending to invade it, but when he and his army from Medina show up, they just open the doors and say, just come on in and take over and do what for us what you did to that other city, kind of make the trains run on time and eliminate the gangs and the crime problem, uh, and made it the center of uh, Islam as it is today. After his death in 632, his associates uh, compiled the content of the revelations he had shared with them. With them, And according to Islamic thought, uh, God kind of organized all that process so you end up with, in Arabic, exactly what God wants in their scripture called the Quran. And, uh, by, and so he dies in 632. By 700, uh, 68 years later, Muslim armies slash missionaries have established control over the entire Arabic peninsula, into Israel, into Transjordan, uh, into Syria, all the way across North Africa, uh, basically eliminating the Christian church, which had a strong presence in all those countries prior to that. Now, the split between the Sunni Muslims and the Shia or the Shiite Muslims began shortly after Muhammad's death, and it has nothing to do with we're going to be violent or nonviolent toward non-Muslims. It has to do with who's in charge of the religion. Uh, the uh, the Shia wanted a blood relative of Muhammad to be at the top of the pyramid and the running religion and organize it, and the Sunnis wanted uh, a non-relative, the most qualified associate to run it. So you have kind of two distinct branches but they have the same spectrum between violent and nonviolent within them. They're not one's violent and one's nonviolent. And the difference isn't doctrinal, it's procedural and, and structural, that kind of thing. So, bullet points after he dies, Islam rapidly spreads across North Africa, Middle East, and even into the begins to go into the Balkans and through the Gibraltars and heading towards Spain. Um after Muhammad's death, Shiites wanted a male relative of Muhammad to be the next leader. Sunnis wanted a different person, a close associate, so they divided on that initially. And not all of them hate each other, Sunni, Shia, but a lot of them do. A lot of them that tend to be violent are happy to, if they bump into the, the, the Iranians uh, are all Shia, right? Watch this. ISIS, ISIL, Al-Qaeda, are they Shia? They're Sunnis, okay? They're Sunnis. The idea of the Sunnis are the nice ones. Osama bin Laden was was a Sunni. Uh, I think he's rethinking his theology from a different perspective now. Uh, the same basic theological views held by both branches, but there's a wide spectrum. And the term jihad, which means struggle, is presented two different ways in the Quran. The uh, Muhammad called the primary uh, jihad to be the person's struggle to be a good Muslim, to submit to Allah the secondary jihad, when necessary, and uh, how, what necessary means is defined differently by the different groups, is external violence against non-believers, including Muslims that don't agree exactly like you do. Okay, that's Islam's present, their past. Now let's talk about their precepts. And I, w- I want to use as a baseline uh, what I would call the doctrinal aims. Now watch this. I like acronyms. A-I-M stands for Absolute Irreducible Minimum. 
And this is really important for, for Christians, especially Christians at a church like this, to be able to uh, visualize and at some basic level articulate what is the absolute irreducible minimum truth claims Christians embrace, despite the fact we've got 21,000 different denominations, um, because this church is about, most churches hammer out pretty specific doctrinal statements about those things and more that groups agree to, and they've got a right to do that. We don't do that here, because this is a unique experiment where we've got a group of born-again believers in Jesus Christ from a wide variety of denominational backgrounds, united by our faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and a desire to grow and reproduce spiritually primarily by focusing on the teaching and application of Scripture and other things like fellowship and worship and prayer and evangelism and world missions. So by definition, this is a group made up of Baptists and Presbyterians and uh Church of the Nazarene and Roman Catholics and other groups. If I've left you out, I'm doing it on purpose to hurt your feelings. No, I'm not, not, I'm not doing it that. Uh, I can't think of any other denominations. I know, I don't know all 21,000, but I know more than four. I can't think of any right now under, under pressure. But, uh, it's really important for us to be able to say, because somebody's, if you're a TBF for, for very long, you're going to bump into your Baptist friend at work and say, they won't say it exactly like this, but, You've got a tangled by a fellowship. Why don't you go to a real church? I mean, to a regular church. I mean, meaning a denominational church where you kind of know what they're doing. And you'll say, well, we're just a, a kind of a unique group. We're not better than everybody else. We're just different. We're not the best church for everybody in town, but we're a good church. Uh, and we center on seven things that are just undeniably true based on Scripture that are very clear. Who God is generally. One God in three persons. Not one plus one plus one equals one, but more like one times one times one equals one. That's who God is generally. Who Christ is specifically, he's the God-man Savior. Who HB, human beings are, we're separate from God because of sin and unable to save ourselves by our own good works. Then the fourth AIM is what Christ did, S-A-S, substitutionary, in your place, for you, atoning sacrifice to pay your sin debt on the cross once for all. It is finished, paid in full, is what he says when he finishes. Validated by what? What validates the saving power of Christ's death? His literal, bodily, supernatural resurrection. You can't reproduce it in a laboratory, but it happened. That's the fourth aim. Uh, the fifth aim, A-R-T. How do we access what Christ did for us? Salvation by grace through faith. Faith is active, receptive trust. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God to those who believe on his name. The sixth aim is what will Christ do in the future? Literal second advent. Christians have all kinds of different diagrams, but we all got a line down from heaven where the same Jesus who came the first time is going to come back and end history on God's term. And then the, the seventh aim is how do we know what we know about God in a proposition, objective sense, through the written scripture. So those are the seven aims. I'm going to show you what Islam does with those seven categories, and it's quite a bit different. It's not the same thing. They're not compatible at all. Now, again, uh, you know, TBF is just one of the ovals here. As God sees his church in, in Duncan, I think he likes it this way. Now, I, I wouldn't design it this way, but God put the death and resurrection of Christ at the center, and there are assembly of God Christians that have trusted Christ as Savior, and there are Methodist folks that have trusted Christ as Savior, and there's Southern Baptists 
who trusted Christ and Savior. And this is my favorite part. Here's Northern Baptists. So you have the Southern and the Northern Baptists who live in Minnesota or someplace. And they've trusted Christ as Savior, been saved by grace through faith. There's Church of the Nazarene. There's Presbyterians who trusted Christ, Lutherans, and even TBFers who trust Christ as Savior. Uh, and at the core of our doctrinal beliefs, we embrace those seven things I just summarized right there, right? At the core of our faith as Christians, regardless of our denominational preferences, is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And the gospel message that Anthony affirmed his faith in by being water baptized today is the fact that because Jesus died for our sins and paid for our sins in our place on the cross once for all, we don't have to die in our sins. And at the end of the atoning sacrifice, he says what's usually translated in three words in English, it is finished. It's one Greek term, telestai, means paid in full, mission accomplished. And you, know, you can go to a, a pagoda in Thailand. We've been there where they have part of Buddha's collarbone. Or you can go to the garden tomb and find an empty tomb. It's still empty because of the literal bodily, the body ain't there now. The spirit went back in, supernaturally transformed, and he's ascended to heaven. Uh, and through faith in the crucified, risen Savior, yes, Methodists who believe are saved, and Presbyterians who believe are saved, and even Charismatics who believe in Christ are saved, and uh, Baptists, and it's just a wonderful thing. And it transcends color, country, and culture also, not just denominations. But let's think about what Islam's precepts are, and uh, we're using those seven categories. Who God is first. Uh, the Quran specifically says, responding to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, because they're living in like 600, round numbers, A.D. They're looking back at developed Christian preaching and theology. It specifically says, God exists as one person, and the idea of a trinity is blasphemy. So the, the whole idea that basically what the Muslims are saying about God is the same thing as the Christians and the Jews can't be true because of Muslim teaching. <laughs> you know, I'm just telling you what the Muslims teach. Now, I would say it can't be true because of Christian teaching, too. But they just they just directly say, no, ain't no trinity. In fact, it's something like desist, say not there is a trinity. I mean, just it's, it's anathema if you believe in the trinity. And some of these ISIS thugs will put a knife to people and say, do you believe in the Trinity? Knowing if you say, yeah, they're going to chop your head off. These things happen right now. They're crucifying people. You realize that? Um, it's, it's not a good thing. So God is unitary. His name is Allah. Uh, it's interesting. The word for God in Arabic is just Allah. So a Christian at a Christian, I've been to Arabic-speaking church services with translator, and they use the word Allah for the real God. But uh, Muslims have a different conception. One God and one person. One, one theological problem with one God and one person is that kind of God would need to create to be fulfilled because if he's love and you're just loving yourself, you're not really fully expressing love. The idea of the Trinity, in addition to many other things, mainly it's true, allows the fact that God didn't need to create the universe to fulfill his need to love something. Uh, it's, he, he did it out of sheer super grace. He doesn't need my help. He doesn't even need your help. He wants us to be part of the team. He'll allow us to score some points for the team, but he doesn't need my help or Billy Graham's help or your help. He's bigger than that. He's not even an American either, even. But I'm offending everybody here, aren't I? God's not an American. He's bigger than that. Uh, who Jesus is specifically? Uh, you might think that they blaspheme Christ like they blaspheme the Trinity. No. 
They think very highly of Isa. Jesus was the greatest human prophet of God of all time except for one. He's number two, which isn't bad, really, you know. Muhammad's number one. But they, they, you know, they look back historically and say, oh, let's get Jesus in there. He's, he's, he's good. He's a Muslim, you know. Uh, humanity is in sin. I call it GI. We're guilty and with an inability to save ourselves, which is why we need a Savior to do the work for us. Uh, according to Islam, the problem isn't sin. It's more ignorance and a lack of submission, more generally. Uh, what did Jesus do? Well, Christians say, S-A-S, substitutionary atoning sacrifice on the cross. Islam denies Jesus died on the cross. And their rationale is this. If Jesus was the greatest prophet of all time, Carol, except for Muhammad, there ain't no way Allah would let such a great prophet die such a horrible death. So what happened was he did allow the Jewish Sanhedrin to push, not the Jews generally, but some of the corrupt religious leaders, to push Jesus into Pontius Pilate's, the Romans' hands, and they all condemned him. But somewhere between the tribunal and Golgotha, you know what happened? Somebody who looked a lot like Isa, and most Muslims think it was Judas, was mistakenly taken from the tribunal to the crucifixion and was crucified. And Jesus did not die uh, on the cross at all. So forget about any kind of atoning sacrifice on the cross. According to Islam, Jesus didn't die at all. So he just ascended to heaven later. Uh, what do we do to access what Jesus did or to get to heaven? Let's put it that way, since according to them, Jesus did nothing but teach. And Islam uh, trumps that with Muhammad's teaching. Uh, they strictly believe salvation by works, by merit. You know, All the world religions have people trying to climb up a ladder of their own construction to get to God, to get his, however they define God in heaven, to make points with God according to their system. It's only the real God who says, you got nothing I want, you got nothing I need, I love you out of sheer super grace, and rather than God saying, do, 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 and you can climb up a ladder of your own making and get to me, I'm going to come down and do for you what you could never do for yourself, which is why we cannot front load the gospel with all this stuff we want Christians to do after they believe. we got to make sure Jesus is the Savior we put the emphasis on his grace and not our merit. But they're just strictly another salvation by good works based on their system, kind of a school of thought. Uh, this always blows people's mind. What will Jesus do in the future? Most Muslims believe Jesus will return. Now, some of you have te- heard me teach this, but let me show you what I mean by that. You can actually buy this book on Amazon.com. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but it's an English translation. But this was written by uh, a Muslim imam, uh, and it's entitled, Jesus Will Return. And according to Muslim theology, some great person, it's not defined in the Quran, but most Muslims think that great person will be Isa, Jesus, because he's the second greatest person of all time. It won't be Muhammad. Muhammad needs somebody to set it up for him, and he's going to take over from there. Uh, that Jesus will return as a Muslim prophet. So, you know, when you're talking about the second coming of Christ, you, you might hear a message about that in, uh, in, a, in a mosque, but it'll be a different Jesus than uh, you and I would read about in the New Testament. And then what's the Bible? Well, uh, according to Islam, the Bible was written by good uh, kind of pre-Muslim Old Testament prophets and by the apostles 
in, in talking about Jesus, the Muslim prophet. But shortly after those books were written, the dirty Jews and the dirty Christians in the generation or two after the original writings corrupted it all and fudged out all the references to Muhammad and the explicit references to Islam and the stuff that would happen so that they could start their own religion. So they're claiming us of hijacking what they're trying to hijack, which is always the way it is, and just, especially in politics today. Just whatever the bad guys are saying about the good guys is stuff they're already doing. Have you noticed that? It's nuts. You couldn't make it up. Um, they uh, talk about the five pillars, and I don't have time to go into that today. Uh, I hear a collective sigh of relief. But uh, <laughs> the first pillar of Islam is public confession of faith. There is no God but Allah, meaning the Muslim God, one God in one person based on their system. And Muhammad is his messenger, his ultimate messenger. I took that picture out of the front, through, through the windshield, kind of hunching down by the driver as we're driving from Amman down to Petra, uh, the last tour, which was many years ago now, unfortunately, when we were in Jordan. And I have no problem, and nobody in that village speaks English, but they know that's the only road. It's not that great of a road. It's not too bad, but uh, you should have been, you should have tried to drive between here and Chickasha yesterday at like 7.30 a.m. so we could take a, a boatload of presents, including bicycles that my best friend built for me because I can't put bicycles together. Uh, to our grandkids, it's a lot of laughs. But I mean, uh, it's like worse than his road. But yeah, I had no objection to him putting that, that store uh, keeper putting that on top of his store. But he knows that a lot of American and Brits and others that speak English will drive down that road. So he's professing his faith. And more power to him. But here's where we're going to conclude. Savior applause. We are done now. Here's the happy ending. Uh, take this to heart. Let's go back to our initial uh, fact factoids that aren't facts. Uh, when you hear somebody saying that all Muslims are Arabs and all Arabs are Muslims, you know better than that right now. You know better than that, right? Because Muslim, there's 1.6 million billion Muslims in the world, much bigger than just the Arab world. But 98% of Arabs are Muslims. Shias are violent, but Sunnis are peaceful. Is that true? No, nah, got nothing to do with it. Absolutely not. Uh, the God of Allah uh, God of Islam, Allah, is another name for the God of Judaism, Christianity. Is that right? It's not right. They, you're insulting a Muslim. If you're around one of the 5% and they've got a weapon and you say that, they're going to kill you for saying that. Let's see, if you say that on CNN, they think you're very tolerant. And it's, it's just stupid. So I say 1 plus 1 equals 9. Why? Because I was told that's what I'm supposed to say. Well, you can say it, but it doesn't mean it. And no good Muslim would agree with that. So why should we say it? Why should we compromise our faith to try to make points with people who don't believe it anyway? The idea that we're all saying the same thing about God is factually incorrect. It's actually disrespectful to Muslims and their faith. And that's the way I, you know, if I'm asking a secular uh, context, that's the, that's the way I'm going to start with it. I'm going to say that's not correct. And to say so is dis- very disrespectful to Muslims and their faith, which is true, right? And then I go from there uh, for sure. Uh, and it's interesting. This is a great guy to quote. I know Anthony gets tired of me quoting him because we quoted him 5,000 times last semester. But Stephen Prothero is not an evangelical Christian. He calls himself a confused Christian. But he wrote a book that's now in paperback and is designed for lay people. God is not one. And he talks about the eight major religions in the world, and he shows how they're not all climbing the same mountain. The thing you used to hear in academia for so long was all the religions are just different paths up the same mountain. And Prothero, as a religious studies scholar, says 
that's ridiculous and it's offensive to all the religions because it demeans what they're saying and it misinterprets it. They're not even climbing the same mountains. They're climbing eight different mountains, okay? So they can't be saying the same thing. They're not saying the same thing. I'll end this way for sure. Muslims are one example of groups that need to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. And it gets complicated depending on how much they've bought into their system. But they're like anybody else. Uh, uh, and i give you an example of a guy I know personally. Muslims need to come to God, the real God, through faith in Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, as the God-man Savior, like all other religious unbelievers and all unreligious unbelievers. And the good news is 20 thousand Muslims a day worldwide are coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ, but most of those people are below the equator, okay? You might not ever see it here, but it does happen all the time, and every one of those is a miracle. But uh, here's a guy uh, right there, the guy with the tie and the, and the big smile. That's my friend uh, Habil Yusuf. He, in the first Gulf War, uh, Operation Desert Storm, uh, and actually that was in 91, but he was uh, drafted by Saddam Hussein into the Iraqi army in 1990. He uh, was on the lines in 91 when uh, George Bush Sr. sent our guys over there to kick uh, Saddam Hussein and the Iraqis out of Kuwait. And three different times, American ordnance fell very close to him, and did not explode. And I think those were the only three bombs that didn't explode in that war. Uh, and he realized that Allah was trying to tell him something. When the war was over, he and his wife, Bella, and she's the beautiful young lady right there, and these are some of their kids. That, that guy kind of reminds me of Clay. He's got that killer smile and really great personality. He's, he's fluent in English, too. But uh, he and Bella immigrated uh, out of the country, they gave him one suitcase and like 48 hours to get out of town. And they came across and went into Jordan, and he had a conversion uh, within the next year and realized that he was looking for Allah, and he found Isa, <laughs> looking for a closer walk with his God, and he, by God's grace, came to faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, so that's what you need to know about Islam. You're welcome. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to think clearly and correctly about the way people think about you and reality, not so we can self-righteously look down our nose at them or think we're smarter than them or better than they are because we're saved by grace and there's nothing for us to brag about. But it's important for us, regardless of what the uh, politically correct spin is or what the uh, oversimplified summaries are that we tend to hear, to think accurately so we can actually apply verses like 1 Peter 3.15. I pray for anyone here this morning who's not, from the depth of their heart, looked at Jesus Christ alone and said, Lord Jesus, I I need a Savior. I I have broken my own standards at my worst, much less God's, and I can't earn your salvation or your love or your salvation, your heaven. But I, I believe that you died to pay for my way into heaven, to be my Savior, not just a helper, a teacher, but a savior. And you died in my place and you rose again from the dead and I embrace you as my savior. And I pray, Father, I know people can't do that unless you're opening eyes and drawing hearts and and bringing them to yourself. And I pray that might happen uh, in hearts today according to your will. 
Uh, and I thank you for each one who's here. And we pray that as we move on to the rest of the morning, you'd be glorified and direct our thoughts and our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.